I'm Gabriel Petrazio. On this episode of Inside the FOLX, I am joined by John Kane, a Mohawk who lives on Seneca Nation territory. Kane is the host of Let's Talk Native, the only native talk program in western New York. He also hosts Let's Talk, a call-in radio program on WBAI out of New York City, calling from the Cattaraugus territory of the Seneca Nation. Good morning and welcome, John. Well, thanks for having me, and uh, thanks for you know in- inviting me to have this conversation. I really appreciate it. You have some extensive knowledge on a lot of different issues at play from your local position here in upstate New York, and I was wondering if you could briefly contextualize where you're calling from today, the Cattaraugus Territory, for our listeners. All right, I, I live on the Cattaraugus Territory of the Seneca Nation. It is... Uh, about 30 miles south of Buffalo, so it's, uh, and we're, you know, we actually touched Lake Erie, this this, uh, this community. It is part of the, the Seneca Nation, one of their two major um, uh, land holdings or territories, and they have a couple of other parcels uh, here and there. Uh, I've lived here for, I don't know, I guess it's 20, 30, 20, 30 years, I guess. Um, 20 years, I guess. And um, and I do my um, my internet radio show podcasts uh, and video recordings from here uh, in my own studio on the Cataraugus territory. That's great, and I really appreciate your time today. You know, you talked a lot about this issue in some of your former programs, which I highly recommend for listeners to go back and tune into. But you brought up a really interesting point that at the service level, it seems to be that there are only two actors at play. We're talking about the Cayuga Nation traditional leadership among the condoled chiefs and Half Town's Cayuga Nation, which is represented and recognized with the backing of the BIA or the Bureau of Indian Affairs. But you're saying that there are so many more players that are at play, and this issue is much more complex than we can even possibly imagine. With that being said, I was wondering if you can dial in and identify who are some of those key players and what's at stake for them in each of their situations. Well, uh, before even getting into the, the the groups, I think what also gets missed in all this is are the Cuga people. I mean, I don't know what the total population is, but it's got to be about 500 Cuga people. I think it's and, 500 or so in our last yeah. estimates. And so there's almost like this aversion to te- to take the temperature of of the vast majority of Cayugas and where they um, where do they fall on this? Do they support Clint? Do they support uh, um, this group uh, that is now called the Chiefs Council? Or do they support that? Do they support traditional government? Do they support elective government? I don't even know the answer to that question. What I will say is, if you look at the the Cayuga population, it is pretty diverse. There's it, you know, there are a lot of people who are Mormons and other Christian denominations. There, the the Cuba population has been scattered across all other native territories because they had, up until recently hadn't had their own land. And in fact, many of the Cubans don't live on native land at all. So you take this five hundred you know person um, nations, and it's it's scattered. You know, pretty you know, <laughs> uh, I mean, it, it's it's it's. They're scattered about pretty well, and uh, and not only geographically, but uh, you know, but culturally. And so, I, I think it's important to, to realize that when we're talking about this conflict, we are really talking about a relatively few number of people who are um, at the center of it. That's a great point. I think oftentimes when we put 
nation behind any term in this instance you know we're talking about sovereign nations we're talking about sovereign peoples that are guided by treaties it seems as if you know the number is a lot larger than it may seem to be so at the, at the center of this conflict i mean you do have clint halfdown and and what is described as his faction which is a, a lot of its family you know his mother his aunt his brother you know people who are close to him and, and on the other side is is kind of an evolving group. I mean, this was a group that was once being touted as a unity council that was, you know, kind of inclusive of some people, especially, like as I mentioned, some of the Mormons and that kind of stuff. That kind of fell apart, and and now it's being, you know, kind of consolidated and, and being touted as, as the condole chiefs. Now, some of these guys may have gone through the full process of, of condolence and, and that kind of stuff, but I'm not sure that all of them have. And, uh, and so... Frankly, even some of their legitimacy can be called into question. So you have those two groups. But the ones who are at the center of, um, of being displaced by all this demolition, that's a smaller group, yeah. And that's a group that has kind of been at odds with both. While they, they clearly have opposed Clint Halftown and have been operating a, you know, the store and, and occupying some of the property that, that Clint Halftown was responsible for uh, you know, under his quote-unquote leadership, uh, bringing into the Cuba nation, uh, they have they have found themselves uh, in some conflict with the both the Unity Council and the and this Chiefs group, and, and in fact, you know, one of the big players in this thing. Uh, it, it, frankly, he's not Cuba at all. He's the, he's the attorney who does mostly does work for Onondaga, the Onondaga Nation, and that's Joe Heath. Now, Joe Heath is one of the guys who uh, who felt like he could make a compelling case to have Clint Halftown's BIA recognition you know, um, pulled and then prop up first this Unity Council and now this... Um, uh, what he calls his chief's council as uh, you know, as the federally recognized leadership, and so he's he's had a big hand in this in this whole thing, and in fact, in correspondence that I saw between him and the lawyers representing the ones who were operating the now demolished store, he was they were demanding that they turn over all the records that turn over the control of the store and the properties to the chiefs. So they could, you know, better make an argument for federal recognition against Clint Halftown. So, the, and you know, and and frankly, in some of that group, they've been talking about, you know, banishment uh, of some of this group, and you know, disenfranchising some of this group. So it hasn't been, you know, it, the the group who, again, who have been displaced by some of this demolition, are not necessarily in whole cloth a part of this this, this chiefs group. No, that makes sense. I think it's really interesting to contextualize who are the alliances and how those alliances are changing. They're ever evolving, like you said earlier, between different sides. And so moving beyond the Cayuga Nation, we're also talking about a series of other nations within the Six Nations, also known as the Haudenosaunee or the Iroquois Confederacy. And so do they have any stake in this? Where, where do they come from on that side? Well, the uh, so one thing I gotta say is that Onondaga has has played a significant role um, to the consternation of many on the leadership in some of these other territories, including and starting with with Oneida, and uh, if not starting there, but certainly significantly with Oneida. Uh, you had a situation, you know, back in the uh, in the late '80s when uh, Onondaga 
um, promoted Ray Hallbritter as, to be federally recognized and suggested that he was recognized by the Confederacy as, um, you know, as some position within the Oneida Nation of New York. And they, and they use language like that, even though at that time, the, all nine titles of the Oneida Nation were filled and condoled. It just so happened that, that those people who sat in those titles uh, were on the uh, the other side of the, the Canadian border in, in Oneida, Ontario. And that caused a big split within the, the Confederacy because you, you once you kind of ostracize the, the an entire Chiefs Council, one of the five nations, um, and then prop up somebody who who really uh, again had some cultural issues. You know, Ray Halbritter was not Longhouse. He was you know his family was Seven Day Adventist. They mm -hmm. and and I'm not condemning from that, but it's not mm -hmm. something that you would ideally see consistent with people who sat on a council in, in Grand Council. So then after they got Ray Halbritter um, uh, federally recognized, they had a falling out. And Onondaga, and, and again, this, this blurry line between Onondaga and, uh, and asserting that essentially they are the Confederacy, they felt they could take Ray out. And that didn't work out so well. So, you know, as, as history proves out, Halbritter not only got federal, federally recognized, but has maintained it and has built his own little empire there in Oneida. And, uh, and in the wake of that, the Oneidas and their place within the uh, with, within Grand Council and, and the and the Confederacy has been you know just a sea of turmoil since then, and that's all because of Onondaga's doing. Now, ironically, they would try to do the same thing with uh, with Cayuga. Clint Halftown was was fully recognized by Onondaga, sat on council with them in Grand Council, was a, was very much an ally of of Onondaga during some of the tax battles of the '90s and and all that other stuff. But he too had a falling out with uh, with Onondaga, primarily because he started working closely with with Oneida, mm. and uh, and then again Onondaga through Joe Heath, their attorney, yes. uh, began a campaign of trying to get uh, get Clint Halftown's recognition pulled. But once again, they propped him up and found out you know getting some, assisting somebody to get federally recognizing. Getting, uh, getting somebody federally recognized using the the weight and the influence of the of the Haudenosaunee Iroquois Confederacy and Grand Council is a lot easier than having that recognition pulled. And so this is where you, you see this pattern of um, and, and I, I'm going to call it it's just meddling by Onondaga in not just the affairs but the leadership and and frankly the the role that the Bureau of Indian Affairs should play in that leadership. I mean, the idea that, that Joe Heath uh, would would reduce this battle to a beauty contest for the Bureau of Indian Affairs is is really disturbing. As as I mentioned on the onset, there's there are 500 Cugas that that should have been a, a bigger part of this. And I'm not just advocating a referendum or an election or whatever else. But I, I don't. Instead of taking this in front of uh, in front of the Bureau of Indian Affairs, hell, you could put 500 Cugas in a room. It just seems it seems absurd to me that missing in all this is uh, is, is any sense of, of the will of the of the people. And so when, when you talk talk about the role that Anadagas played, it's it has been um, a, um, a a role that that causes conflict. Now, if you look across other territories, and like you, like you mentioned, I'm calling you from the, or we're speaking together, and I'm here in the Cattaraugus Territory of Seneca Nation. The nations throughout the Confederacy, including 
you know, some of the, the Cubans and others who live on the other side of the, uh, mm. of the Canadian border in, in uh, the Grand places, River, like, right? Grand River, Oswego. Yeah, there's there's a lot of Cayugas. In fact, some of the the chiefs that, that Joe Heath is, uh, is is arguing are part of the Chiefs Council now are some of those guys who who are you know uh, recognized uh, from from Grand River. That's, that's right. something that Onondaga didn't do in the Oneida case, but that's what they're doing here. So it's 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 interesting. But there has been a call out not only from from Grand Council to send some men out there, which is an unusual thing for Onondaga to do. But there's also been places like some of the Mohawk territories that have said, you know what, they're, you know, we're seeing these videos, they're very, very ugly, we don't like the idea of these, you know, these white cops with Cayuga Nation across their back, you know, beating on a bunch of people. Um, and, you know, and that invoked uh, a real emotional response. As, as did the, the demolitions that took place. And we can get into that a little bit more as we go forward too. Yeah, absolutely. And I think... You brought up before the Grand Council and this call-out. I was wondering if you could talk a little more about that because you're talking about seeing multitudes, right, and different types of players. And now it looks like more of the nations are getting more and more involved on this front. They were there in support earlier when I was covering a protest, not this Sunday, but the last Sunday. And when I was at the press conference that did turn violent, there were people there who weren't, um, from the Cayuga Nation, but supporters and allies alike. So with that being said, I was wondering if you could talk more about the call and what does this mean to you from your perspective for coming from Indian country? Well, I mean, when you go back to the, to the day that, uh, uh, um, or the night, I should say, that, that Clint had his police force and then this other security firm that he hired uh, go in and demolish the, these, uh, these buildings. Um, that got an emotional response that um, what was played up significantly that one of the buildings was a schoolhouse and, and uh, slash longhouse. And that's just gonna, that's just gonna, you know, get a lot of people angry throughout uh, all of the, the native territory. Um, and, and then immediately following that Joe Heath goes into a county legislature uh, session um, and basically said that, that all this action was against the traditional people. Again, tries to cast this as non-traditional versus traditional and, and that he's the lawyer representing the traditional group. Although he certainly wasn't, like I said, representing the group that is displaced by all this, uh, at least not specifically. Um, and of course, then they, they did encourage a, a bit of a protest to take place um and including the Onondagas, out at um, the, the the stores that, that Clinton Halftown is operating. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, and among some of the groups that came out there were were a bunch of white folks that support Onondaga out in Syracuse. They call themselves the Neighbors of the Onondaga Nation, or, or Noon. Um, so, yeah, there's, there, there was um, a call-out to get people to, uh, to be seen on this issue. So, as the week transpired... Um, there was also a call out for a press conference to be held at the site, uh, you know, at or about the, this demolition site in Cayuga in, uh, uh, at Lakeside. And, and it was called out by, you know, it was, it was called for by what is, what is being called the, the Confederacy chiefs. Now, the question that I have is you know, why would you call an angry mob to show up there for a press conference and then just leave? And, and that's what a bunch of these guys did. But then you got this mob standing there, you know, essentially facing off with uh, uh, you know, with the Cayuga Nation police, these, these former officers and military guys who, who Clint has hired as his police force. 
and you know, and I and I flat out said I, the two people that the two entities that I hold responsible for what what everybody the, the display everybody saw across Facebook was the organizers who called everybody to go there, mm-hmm. and the fact that you had state police and and five or six other police forces around there who just sat there and watched instead of creating any kind of line between the you know the so-called Cayuga Nation police and these protesters, they just let it all happen and they just watched it all play out and but. I think it's important that, that people understand that is as ugly as that video was. If you really look, you'll see that all of those uh, that activity took place on the piles of rubble from those from that demolition, which which clearly shows that the native that the people who were protesting there approached the cops. The cops didn't come off of you know didn't attack anybody. They you know initially they they were there. Why were they were there protecting piles of rubble is beyond me. But they were there, um, and and their presence was somewhat uh, instigating. But again, I don't know why state police and local police um, didn't, uh, you know, essentially tell the Cayuga police to you know to, to back off and uh, and let let these other police uh, departments play a role in, in creating some sort of buffer between them. So I, I look at at the local law enforcement um, and the organizers of uh, of this so called press conference um, as as. As, as really kind of, you know, letting this stuff play out and, and cause some of this conflict. Now, as it would turn out, after the press conference, the, uh, again, there was supposed to be a grand council that was following and, uh, to follow, and I don't know if it didn't fo- happen until the next day. It happened but, on um, Sunday, yes. Right, but originally, I think that it, it was called for the weekend. They were going to do the, Now, I don't know why you wouldn't do a press conference after a grand council instead of before it. That's another thing that I find a little disturbing, a little strange. So these guys continue on Onondaga and hold this um, this grand council. And um, while I didn't get all of the specific uh, information on, on who was actually there, because I, I really doubt that there was any Oneida representation there because of the fallout from the past. But um, I, what came out of that was a decision by grand council to, to send 30 to 40 guys out to Cayuga to, um, I don't know, to, to protect the families that are there now uh, again if we break this thing down into in terms of who the players are mm-hmm. at this point the, the those individuals who are operating the store and, and utilizing the daycare and the schoolhouse and, and all that other stuff that's not a big group i mean at any given time you may only get a chance to meet with 10 or you know 10 or 20 of them sure. in total there may be 30 or 50, counting the non-Cayugas and, and the children and that kind of stuff. But it, it's it's really only a family or two, you know, and mm. that, that lie at the center of um, the ongoing conflict because they're still there. And frankly, they want the store back. And, mm-hmm. and of course, Clint's position is, no, that's mine. <laughs> and then I'm the, I'm the federally recognized leader, and I get to say, you know, who stays and who doesn't. Now, all those people are still living in homes. I think it's important to point that Clint, Clint didn't go in and bulldoze the homes that they were staying in. He basically bulldozed the, the buildings that they were operating and occupying, um, uh, the non-residential spaces. Mm-hmm. And so these guys are all holed up in, in their homes. I don't know if they're just waiting for the next shoe to drop. And, and for all of those who are putting call-outs for people to go there, Essentially, what they're saying is go there and protect those people. But I don't know. I don't even know what that really means. I mean, if that means, you know, um, stand up to the Cuban Nation police 
or or whomever. I mean, Clint Hathaway's not going to go there, so there's not going to be any confrontation with Clint's group. It's going to be basically his either his police force or perhaps he hires you know, rehires that the security force that was that was on point when they uh, went in and demolished everything. That's a great point. I you know I was thinking earlier about what you were saying and there there was a lot at play in during this situation and i spoke with um cameron simpson who i interviewed he was one who made some viral videos from that saturday and they were he basically described those who were getting called out um giving a break to people the men on guard who were watching over the site and their families they feel concerned that you know there might be a form of retaliation following the incident, following the brawl. But I will say, you know, I think you bring up a really important point, which is that it was instigated in Cameron and another um, eyewitness source, Charles Bowman, who was uh, unlawfully detained by the Cayuga Nation police, who is a non-Indian, both stated that Cayuga men, a few or a handful of Cayuga men, um, went across the yellow police tape and entered the premises, um, and you know it was interesting to think why would they do that? That they felt that they wanted to stand on the property and claim that this is theirs. And no, they wanted out. they wanted to confront the the the, the Asian police that they held somewhat responsible for the demolition in the first place. I That's mean, true, I, I mean, <laughs> I don't want to hedge it too much, but no, but at the same course. time, why why have a but why have these uniformed non-native guys in Cayuga Nation uniforms? guarding piles of rubble i mean what's the point of them being there well, that's I mean, a what good are they... question that is a good question <laughs> well and, and 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 make no mistake about it i think some of the violence that was demonstrated on those videos was disproportionate i think some of the people who were sprayed in the face with pepper spray and were wailed upon by the, their batons i thought the cuba nation um police did act badly i will say that they may not have initiated the con uh, you know some of the mm-hmm. the physical mm-hmm. conflict but their response i thought was disproportionate and and again shame on all of the other police forces who are around who just let this this play out this way well that's the issue i think that i'm trying to deal with too and you you told me earlier before we started that you were, had a chance to read my article about the feeland situation and i think one of the complications that we're seeing now is that how tribal nations and their governments are coming at odds with local state entities specifically in new york state in this instance where the jurisdiction question is really up in the air we really don't know at this point it's clearly now we can determine because of finger lakes one in our reporting that the land is taxable which means it's fee land and it's not held in trust because there is a currently a held uh, held in trust land application that is before the Bureau of Indian Affairs. So technically the land isn't held under the tribal law immunities and and the sovereign um, clauses that are at play. With that being said, I think it's really difficult for law enforcement to come along um, and, you know, get involved, like you said, and I'm not trying to justify their actions, but I definitely could see how they could sit idly by in a way then why then why even be there then why even be there is my question i mean yeah. they, you know they claim to have monitored the demolition and 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 that kind of thing so so what is their purpose then and so i mean but uh, but i got i do have to say that you know looking at your reporting i understand the position that the from a non-native pers- perspective but 
even the question about what land being taxable and, and under whose jurisdiction it is, that land still all lies within what the federal government has says still exists as the um, they still define that land as as part of the Cuke Reservation. That's right. So the so the jurisdictional question and even the the t- the, the taxable status of the land is still something that is not as um, as defined as people may think. I mean, the, while the Cayuga Nation may still be paying taxes on the property, they may be doing it in, you know, essentially in protest. Um, and so it's, it's still not as clear. Now, as far as the police, and this is where, the, the again, from a Native perspective, um, do we as Native people have the right to build a police force? Sure we do. I mean, should we build one? Uh, I'm not saying because we have the right to do that it, to do it that we should do it mm-hmm. and so when i look at what, what clint has done especially you know creating this this police this police force out of non-native police officers I mean, and so their only experience is 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 about new york state law it's, it has nothing to do with with cayuga law and and as far as the other police forces go you know this doesn't have to be that complicated i mean uh, there this is what the whole federal recognition thing the problems that it causes because it does. It empowers Clint to have a dispro- disproportionate amount of authority to do things like create a police force. And, and and thus far, there's been no clear directive that came from the federal government to say, do they, do they have, does this Oneida, or I'm sorry, this Cayuga police force have the right to protect um, Cayuga owned property or only Cayuga nation, you know, you know, um, off the tax, you know, tax rolls property. Mm-hmm. I think that's that's a, a big question. Yeah. Absolutely. So it's not it's not quite as clear. And even whether a land is is regarded by the county as being taxable, uh, legitimately taxable. I mean, you, you use words like lawful and unlawful detention. Well, you know, I, I always tell people. You know, when people talk about what is legal and illegal, that standard isn't always as clean as people want to think. Um, slavery was legal. Genocide was legal. Dropping two atomic bombs on, on, on a small island country was legal. None of that stuff, the definition of what is lawful and unlawful is oftentimes determined by the people who get to enforce that law. No, that's a great point. You know, I think, I think understanding that through legal framework is important to step back because like you said, there are things that have been deemed legal but unethical or just, you know, against the detriment of, you know, society and humanity at that point. Well, I mean, if you go back, if you, you know, if you look at the Ruth Bader Ginsburg opinion that was written in uh, City of Cheryl versus Oneida, you know, she talks about what they call the doctrine of impossibility. And what she says is that once jurisdiction or you know tribal jurisdiction over a land is lost even if it was lost through fraud or theft or whatever else you know she makes the argument that they cannot simply assert uh, reassert that jurisdiction and she you know so and that's what she calls she calls it the doctrine of impossibility you can find it in that in that case and it's really kind of absurd and it's also not true because again the seneca nation they have a um a circumstance based on a, a settlement on on the Salamanca lease uh, that existed, where they can reassert jurisdiction over uh, lands that they reacquire without going through the federal trust process. So again, a lot of this stuff is not as clear cut as you know as the legal framework would suggest that it does that it is. With that being said, what do you see as the clearest path forward? How do how do 
is it from the federal government? Is it the BIA really stepping? Is it, is it the Department of Interior, the DOJ? Like, where where do you see this going next? Where does the power lie in this situation to kind of quell the conflict that has been, um, you know, on the trend for the past two weeks? But also now we're seeing, um, you know, addressing that conflict from... Well, this conflict obviously, you know, has been um, excited over the last two weeks, but but this conflict over federal recognition and where authority lies and that kind of stuff has been going on for a long time. You know, including back when the the Cubans were more united and and all of the white folks around there were uh, were so disarmed by them by them asserting a presence back in their homeland i mean there was a i remember this the racist signs the upstate citizens for equality and and all of all of that that went on for for years so th- this conflict's been going on for some time but as far as the path going forward look the bureau of Indian affairs is is part of the problem uh you know and to, so for me to see, you know, think that that's the solution i gotta tell you and and i've said this before i think the solution is is trying to get a broader participation by the Cuga people to, uh, you know, at some, in some manner, assert what they want. And, you know, and I don't know, you know, the, the problem with federal recognition is once it's granted, it is very, very, very difficult to have it uh, pulled. In fact, there's a, there was a, there was a Supreme Court ruling that prohibits the Bureau of Indian Affairs from creating a void in tribal government. And so the idea of pulling Clint's recognition, um, and then the Bureau of Indian Affairs trying to assert some standard for determining who his replacement will be, that's that's a slippery slope, too. I mean, here's the thing about the, what the Bureau of Indian Affairs is willing to accept as a, um, a legitimate a referendum. And, and this is their standard. Their standard is all they need to be, uh, be uh, see demonstrated is that 30% of who the Bureau of Indian Affairs recognizes as the the members of the Cuga Nation, uh, participation of 30% of the membership um, and the majority of that. So literally 15% of the population plus one, uh, as far as the Bureau of Indian Affairs, is enough for them to make a determination. But in this case, they didn't even have that. I don't know what they, they based a lot of this on the fact that that Clint was recognized previously and uh, with the support of Onondaga and the so-called Confederacy. So it's, so the path going forward, I, I think that other nations um, have to hold Onondaga accountable for, for their meddling. I think some of the truth of this thing has to come out. But, but I got to tell you, um, it, it, this is one of those things that you, you, you get a ball rolling down a hill and it's a little hard to tell where that, you know, where the where the cliff is that it falls off of. And so it's hard to know what the, what the path forward is on, on this. But I, I think that there really has to be a better outreach and in, in trying to get the view of the, the Cuba people. Because when push comes to shove, I don't know if, if you were to look at the, at the teams as they're aligned right now, the, the Joe Heath and his, and his chiefs council versus uh, Clint Halftown and the, his federal recognition. I don't know where the vast majority uh, of Cuba's lie. And here's the thing. If even if it, the, there is the majority that supports one side or the other, does the minority have to just go along with that? And, and I mean that's that is not exactly our way either. I mean what what United States calls democracy, eh, it has some pretty shaggy edges to it. And and what we as a Haudenosaunee, we 
we make determinations by consensus, not just simply by 50% plus one. No, that's a great point. I think looking back inward to representing and voicing the members of the Cayuga Nation is a really important part because large in part we really haven't been able to hear much of that because of this issue with displacement, the issues that are at play. And, you know, obviously protesters are more more voiceful than other groups that may be for Halftown. And there's possibly that there are members of the nation that are in support of Halftown, which there are because there's two factions at play. But with that being said, I think it's a really great point that you brought up. Um, beyond what we've talked about today, I was interested in asking you, we talked earlier about how that there was a spectrum of options that can be moving forward beyond fee land or placing land in trust for the Cayuga Nation and looking beyond that. I was wondering if you could talk briefly about what does that look like for you on your end from your perspective? What is that spectrum of options that could arise with dealing with the land dispute? Well, I mean, there's, obviously there's there's federal trust, you know, the, the in what they call the fee-to-trust process. And uh, and and that pro- that process is somewhat problematic. Although I will say there are other means for establishing uh, holding land in trust. Um, you know, whether you do it from a you know, an educational land trust standpoint, or um, it, I, to be honest with you, the Tonawanda um, uh, Seneca Reservation or ter- Seneca Territory, that land um, is actually probably is still probably held in state trust because the they. The, the Tonawanda Senecas were were paid to leave and go to Kansas at one time, and they used that money and bought their land back. But but I think they had state support at the time. So there are some other options there. And, of course, there is the other option of, of fighting to assert original title there. I mean, the federal government has, has been clear in, in their determination that they never um, dissolved or uh, this, this notion of a Cayuga reservation. And so if they're recognizing that there's that there's still lands, even if there are non-native occupants on that land, I, I think that a, a new uh, um, approach to how the Cayugas assert their land title, something akin to what the Senecas have, the ability to reclaim the lands in their ancestral uh, homeland and, uh, and assert original title, that is that should be the... Um, the goal here. The goal should not be to have the federal government hold your land. Even if that is a, a short-term plan, the, a long-term goal should be that the Cugas own their land in original title. Not as, you know, uh, you know, deeded a New York State deed or even a, a federal deed, but as Cuga Nation land. How they deal, deal with that internally is another issue. Now, the other thing I, I will say, uh, uh, just to jump back a little bit, I think one of the other solutions could be is that if a legitimate, and, and, I, and, I, and I mean legitimate, not just you know somebody claiming to have held a grand council, but if the, the Six Nations legitimately um, put the effort in to at least make the determination, not the Bureau of Indian Affairs, but, but the Six Nations made the determination on whether the Cayuga Nation wants to be a part of the uh, of grand council, if they want to have a chief's council, if if that's what they prefer, then then it should be up to uh, the Cubas working with the uh, the other the other five nations to make uh, t- you know to work that out, and then then they can deliver this um, you know their findings to the um, 
to the Bureau of Indian Affairs. But here's the difficulty in that. Here, and, and it, go, it comes down to definitions. The Bureau of Indian Affairs defines a, um, a federally recognized tribe, and they use the word tribe, as a tribe, band, or nation of Indians subordinate to the laws of the United States. Mm. And look, of the 575 federally recognized tribes, the overwhelming uh, majority of those never asked to be recognized as a tribe, band, or nation of Indians subordinate to the laws of the United States. That is the way the United States kind of devolved the definition of a native person. And in some of that, you know, can be tra- tracked you know, back to 1934 when they passed the Indian Reorganization Act and tried to, to redefine what a, uh, you know, and, and, and for the federal government, not for us, but to define what our identity was. And, and, I, and I always cite this, but the reality is when you, um, you pass the Indian Citizenship, Citizenship Act in 1924 declaring all Native people to be citizens right. and then trying to define what, what a Native person is in, you know, 10 years later, that, that activity on the, on the world stage was originally referred to as denationalization, the idea of stripping away somebody's national character and imposing na- the national char- character of somebody else upon them. That was considered a war crime in 1913, 1911. I mean, it would later be redefined as genocide. Genocide isn't just about killing people. It's creating the conditions by which we cease to exist as the people we once were. And, and a lot of this, the, these federal policies, including, look, I call federal recognition FEDREC, F-E-D-W-R-E-C-K. That's, the, that's what I call it because it, it does. It creates um, a lot of dissension. It creates a hierarchy uh, amongst the culture that never had hierarchies. I mean, our... Our um, uh, system was a clan system, not a chief system, and it was a, it was a, a, a system that that where where people reached consensus, not majority, and, and it wasn't one person you know uh, speaking on behalf of somebody, carrying their voice perhaps, but not not asserting authority. A chief was a servant of the people, not a lord and master of them. And I know you know this idea of public service and servant of the people is a is a trite expression. But that was a uniquely Haudenosaunee concept that when you that you when you placed a responsibility on somebody that they were in your service, not that they were your your lords and masters. That's a great point. And you know, you just brought up something for me as well is that I think this further divides the factions in a way because in the case of the traditional condoled chiefs, they say that they make decisions based on consensus. Now what does that mean? Does that mean that the consensus is among them, excluding Halftown, or how does you know how does that work in that sense? Because they do reference that they do actually operate under a consensus model. And and they say that, but but I don't see much evidence of that. I, you know, I don't see you know well participated in uh, you know clan meetings and uh, you know or, or people within you know every one of those those titles of the Cayuga Nation you know coming together. So if you reach consensus in, in, a, in a in a room of five people, that's one thing. Um, you, but like I said, the, the vast majority of of Cayugas are not consulted, and and then you're also what also confuses it is. The, the the issue related to the Canadian border. I mean, as, as Haudenosaunee, we may not recognize that Canadian border, but the United States does. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, and if the United States wanted to try to determine what the will of the Cubas were, they would say, well, we can't include uh, the Cubas that live in Grand River. <laughs> so if they can't include the Cubas that live in Grand River, how, you know, what are they going to do with the so-called titles that are, that are filled 
by people in grammar. It, it, it gets really, really complicated in, in that regard. And, and, and so when even some of these, these, these so-called traditionals, when they say they operate in consensus, yeah, historically that's the way, that, that's the way we're supposed to operate. But unfortunately, I think a lot of these folks are, are real quick to say, well, they're, they're outside the circle. You hear this being said amongst the, the traditionals. Well, we don't, we, they're, not, they're not a part of us. Well, what if they're still Cayuga? What if they're what if they're Mormon? What if they're they're Clint Halftown's group? Do they lose their voice? And who gets to determine who loses that? And 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 on the, by the same token, I sat in with some of the the Halftown group, and I've heard them say, "Well, we don't want all these guys showing up at these meetings." I mean, they wanted to exclude people too. So you have a lot of this this effort to to exclude people, and and that undermines the whole process of of determining the will of the people. That's a great point. And earlier in some of the other reports, Halftown cited that argument that because of the fact that they live, the other members of the traditional um, government from Cayuga Nation live in Grand River, they are not truly Cayugan um, members in that sense. They're not represented and, you know, they could fall possibly under First Nations of like Canada or something of that sort out of the the jurisdiction of the United States, of the federal, you know, um, United States, like you mentioned before. So it's interesting that that's at play as well, because that was an argument that was cited by Halftown. Well, and and it's ironic coming from him, considering when he was, you know, sitting uh, as a part of Grand Council, he was sitting side by side with, you know, uh, perhaps with with folks from from Grand River. So now that he is, you know, uh, you know, been basically had his falling out with Onondaga, um, now he's the Cuga Nation of New York, and uh, and and kind of dismisses th- this notion of Confederacy and Haudenosaunee, which is what he has to do to be able to, you know, um, suggest what what he what he you know what he decided now as far as well those Cuyugas don't count because trust me they will make that same argument about you know whether um, about where a Cuga lives beyond just the Canadian border. Well, they they don't really live here. So they don't they don't get a voice and 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 of course the other thing is and I've I've tried to suggest to the halftime group why don't you guys you know, I do use such a, a pun because it's been it's so trite why don't you bury the hatchet I mean why don't you guys just you know kind of patch things up and go forward and, and I've heard people from his group say no those people have to pay they have embezzled money they have stolen money from the Cuban nation and they have to pay for what they did so there's this real sense of of vindictiveness and you know and retaliation that that is playing out frankly on both sides i mean you know again the emotional response that comes from from clint halftown ordering the demolition of buildings including one that is was arguably a longhouse is is the one that says well that's it he no longer you know he has crossed the line and so he is no longer you know has a voice I would like to talk a little bit on the longhouse issue, if you wouldn't mind. Absolutely. And I wanted to also, before we jump to the longhouse and switch gears there real quick, I wanted to say that I thought something was interesting at the press conference was, you know, the traditional government citing the great law of peace as a foundational um, law that operates or organizes the Cayuga Nation. And like you said before, is that there's retaliation on both sides, but... You know, I understand that Halftown operated in a in a violent way by destroying an, essentially a community there in the Cayuga Nation on on the Route 89. But at the same time, members of the of the nation also enacted in in agitating 
and initiating conflict as well on the property this past Saturday. And I thought that was an important notion. Well, and here's the interesting thing about anybody citing the, the great law of peace. And our word is it doesn't actually translate to the great law of peace, but that's, you know, that's been the common, commonly held translation. But, the, but here's the interesting thing. There is no place within the Goa that um, authorizes pursuit of BIA recognition. So when Onondaga and Joe Heath um, reduces down to a contest before the Bureau of Indian Affairs, that is completely inconsistent with what any of us would hold as a part of the Haudenosaunee. And, and it certainly wasn't, uh, wasn't something associated with the will of the people. I mean, Joe Heath was arguing that the chiefs that, that, that he was promoting should be federally recognized. I mean, this was this was a contest being being you know, uh, you know judged by the Bureau of Indian Affairs, not by the Cuga people. So shame on those guys for trying to dance in in, uh, in the in these two worlds, and shame on Joe Heath for for reducing this thing. I mean, look, if you're going to go in front of the Bureau of Indian Affairs and and make this make this argument, then if you went there, then you got to accept. Um, they're ruling. If you're going to give them the power to make the determination, you can't just say, "Well, we're only giving you to make the, the, the um, giving you the power to determine that we're legitimate. We're not going to give you the power to determine if the other ones are." I mean, it, it's absurd. That's a great point. And with that being said, you wanted to talk about the Longhouse. I let you start wherever you think is best. What What do you think about that? Weigh in on that from your perspective about the destruction. Of a longhouse because I looked at it <clears throat> from my perspective from the guise of the outsider as a non-indigenous person as well it looks like it's the erosion of traditionalism in a way and the erosion of this space where culture was practiced and taught through language and you know farming practices teaching of seeds I understand that they use ceremonies there they had the maple tree ceremonies which are obviously aligned with the Haudenosaunee Thanksgiving address and things of that sort so from that's from my perspective at least but i'm interested in hearing you weigh in on that from you as well, first, well first of all here's what i don't understand if Quinn Halfdown has all this power why did he just have the utilities shut off at these buildings i mean if he had the power to destroy the demolish these things including why did he just have the power poles I mean, I, it just doesn't make sense to me that you know that that's what he had to do. But getting to the specifically to the longhouse, here's the problem with with a lot of um, this emotional response that that people are trying to you know pull from that. Look, I saw that building. I know what that building was designed as. I know what it. I know what it was built as. It was built as a longhouse. It was a rectangular building with doors on either end, just like a longhouse. Had two. Stoves inside that represented the fire of the longhouse inside. It had benches along the outside wall, just like any other longhouse in the Confederacy. But you know what? They couldn't call it a longhouse. And I'll tell you why. Because Joe Heath sent a letter to um, to the, the lawyer representing that group, is Joe Callahan, and said, Sid Hill, the, the, the Onondaga sitting in the title of the Tanadao, said he wouldn't sanction it as a longhouse. They literally were told by Onondaga that they couldn't have a longhouse because Sid Hill said so. That's and the only reason, essentially. No, no, this looked back a ways. Oh, okay. No, no, from the start when they built it, um, the bottom line is Joe Heath told this group, you can't have a longhouse because Sid Hill says you can't. 
I mean, so they had to call it a schoolhouse. And look, I know they used it for ceremonies, and I know what it was built as and what it was supposed to be. But the fact that, you again, you had Anadaga claiming, you know, or Sid Hill, uh, which is, even Sid Hill's position is, is problematic, and I'll talk about that. But Sid Hill suggesting that the, I mean, if they have their own chiefs council, as, as Joe Heath is suggesting, why would they need Sid Hill to approve whether they have a longhouse or not? From a separate I mean, it, nation. It, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, well, and, uh, even the separate nation thing, and, and I'll talk about Sid Hill and his position in just a moment, but, but the, 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 the truth is that they were, they were not allowed to call it a longhouse without necessarily being, you know, probably crossing crossing Seed Hill, um, the Taladaho of the of the Haudenosaunee, of the Haudenosaunee. I mean, and that's the way they viewed it. So they didn't call it a longhouse. Now, once Clinton Halftown bulldozed it, now even even Joe Heath and those guys are calling it a longhouse. Why? Because it it, it evokes a more emotional response. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, I think it was a it was a travesty what uh, what Clinton Halftown did. And I'm not saying just because. Joe Heath or anybody else said they couldn't call it a longhouse, that it wasn't a longhouse, and that, that somehow because it wasn't being called a longhouse that, that uh, Clint Halftown could destroy it. No, it, it was a lot of that. But you know what? You know, our culture does not um, – a longhouse isn't a church. It, it is, you know, it is a place that we, you know, originally it's, it, it, were the, it, was, it was the place that we lived in, but it was the places that we, we used to get out of the elements of the weather. Whether it was, most of the time we would counsel and do ceremonies outside. We would only use a longhouse um, for ceremonies or for counsel if the weather wasn't permitting. So uh, sometimes this thing has been taken a little out of context. And you know, while I think it's an absolute travesty what um, what Clint did uh, relating to this uh, to all those buildings, but including uh, you know this building this longhouse slash schoolhouse was. I mean, it was not only a huge mistake on his part. It, I mean, it was a terrible thing that he did. But, you know, let's be honest. Clint Halftown's losing the public relations war and all of this stuff. But I just think that it's important that people don't get caught up into into some of the hysteria that's being spun by Onondaga or, you know, or, or some of the people who are really just responding emotionally to all this stuff. I think that's a really great point. I, I spoke with Cameron Seneca, who was one of the students that... Um, worked at the schoolhouse who learned the cultural teachings and things of that sort and you know one of the things he told me was yes it was horrible that this happened but at the same time it was just a space and it's temporary and that they will eventually find a new place to teach and to learn and to be in touch with the culture there so I think that's a really great point to consider as well with that being said I was wondering if for our listeners if you could talk about that other faction that was involved that you just uh, aforementioned before because I'm actually not familiar with that name. Well, I'm, I'm sorry, which... Um, you said Mill, I think. Was it Mill? Sid Hill? Sid Hill, excuse me. Yes. Oh, okay. Well, Sid Hill is... He is the... Um, uh, he sits in the position of Taradaho, which is a, a specific title within the Haudenosaunee. You know, one of the things that, again, the, this whole Bureau of Indian Affairs thing that is awkward in all of this is that Sid Hill is recognized by the Bureau of Indian Affairs as the chief of Onondaga, but but he's not. The title that he sits in is is a unique title within the Six Nations. It is a it is a title that is a Confederacy title. It is not a Onondaga Nation title. So 
there seems to be a lot of confusion because from from a Haudenosaunee standpoint, his responsibility as Tadadaho is is a confederacy responsibility, not a specific Onondaga responsibility. Mm-hmm. So this is where the whole Onondaga confederacy thing starts to get really foggy and almost on purpose, you know, um, because of the view that that some of the Onondaga, not all the Onondaga people do, so I don't want to pick on all the Onondagas, but the leadership in Onondaga has been trying to lay claim to be, not just be the, the central fire of the Haudenosaunee, but essentially to be, you know, oftentimes represent themselves as the Haudenosaunee. You saw this in folks like like Oran Lyons, who is what who sat who sits as a faith keeper not as a chief and yet he travels the world uh, representing himself as the uh, you know as as a, a member of the Onondaga Chiefs Council the reality is he's a faith keeper not a chief and in this situation you've got Sid Hill who sits in this very revered title um but is is, is conducting himself in a way that is that is completely inappropriate for for that for that title it's almost like he's playing two roles. He's playing the role as an Onondaga chief recognized by the by the Bureau of Indian Affairs, and then also trying to play a role as the uh, as the leader of the Confederacy, which that's not the, what the Tadatahu position is either. So that's an awkward spot, and and this is where you know oftentimes Joe Heath, this attorney, will will cite you know something from you know from uh, Sid Hill, and and again this is this cuts to part of the problem associated with with this whole mess going back to you know before joe heath and sid hill were uh even the main players and and the onondaga's role with oneida and then up through here with with Cayuga. that's a great point with that being said uh i'd like to wrap up for today but as we wrap up do you have any final points or comments that you would like to share with our listeners something that we missed over glanced that you would like to share with our listeners at fingerlakes1.com. Well, and, and as I talked about this on my show, you know, one of the problems that uh, uh, that persists with um, well, uh, up until the store was demolished, was that once the control of that store was taken from Clint Halftown, there were a series of people who had gone through there and either managed or operated the store. Uh, in in manners that have not been fully transparent, there you know there are two of the guys who sit on that chiefs council who have houses bought and paid for in their names out of the revenue that came from that store. Carl Hill and, and, and Sam George. There are there are people who are who went through there and managed for a while who are no longer a part of that. So that people have come and gone. And and while I won't call it outright theft. There have been there have been people, and this isn't even counting any corruption people want to let, uh, cite about uh, Clint Halftown. So it isn't just. I think it is completely wrong to characterize this as the, as the evil Clint Halftown against the righteous uh, traditionals. It's it's certainly not that not that clean. And uh, and and again, I'm not saying that that there needs to be prosecution. There needs to be um, retaliation. Uh, you know, I, I think there's been enough wrong on all sides of this thing that nobody can sit in, in, in some sort of, you know, squeaky clean position and pass judgment on the others. They should they should try to come together and move forward instead of trying to trudge up the past. And, and I'll tell you, um, I, I'll cite what I said earlier. There has to be some means 
uh, and uh, to reach out to the Cuga people to find out what they want. I started having a few conversations uh, over the last couple of days with people who are not at the center of this conflict. I mean, one of the things, Clint Halftown sends checks out. I don't know to who and how many people, but he sends a check out every once in a while. And those people cash that check and and they're glad to get it. I don't know if that means that they support Clint Halftown or not. Um, but that's also, you know, something that has been done in, in Onondaga and in Oneida, you know, put people, you know, make people, you know, quiet them down a little bit by, by paying them off a little. And, and I think that may be part of the reason that Cayugas remain silent. They don't want to lose the little bit that they get. Um, the vast majority of Cayugas will never, uh, in all likelihood, will never move back um, to the Finger Lakes area, to their turn, uh, ancestral homelands, they're, mm-hmm. they're, some of them are firmly established in the communities that they're that they're in, um, or have or bought homes or whatever else. So the likelihood is the vast majority won't go back there. It doesn't mean they, they shouldn't have a say as a Cayuga, but you know I, I think uh, seeing how ugly this has gotten, that that would be that would be de- de- deter me as a Cayuga to want to be involved even more. You know what I mean? Absolutely. I mean, you brought up today, I think, the theme for our listeners here at Finger Lakes One News is the idea of complexity and this ever-changing landscape between intertribal disputes and the affairs right now of the Cayuga Nation within itself, but then also extending past that, looking beyond to the other nations and how those are at play with the interest and the competing interest of different communities and different perceived communities. I think it's a really insightful conversation that we've had today to address some of these concepts. And John, I really appreciate you taking time out of your schedule to speak with me on Inside the FLX. Thank you so well, much. I want to thank you for having me. But I will say that, uh, on one final note, um, you know, the vast majority of people who are not Cayuga, um, would love to support and help resolve the situation, and, and including uh, some of the people who may be on their way there now. The the ultimate goal that most people have is to help. Um, I just don't know that sending um, a bunch of people, uh, you know, on the heels of some of those violent videos um, out there uh, is really a good idea. I know that the intentions are good, but when you when you get there on site and then you're facing a bunch of you know, police officers, you know, who have Cayuga Nation written across their face, but they're really just non-native law enforcement, um, retired or whatever else, it, it's problematic. So I'm hoping that things do, do not continue to escalate. Um, but I also think that that Clint Halftown needs to be reeled in, um, as well as uh, anybody else who's claiming to be, you know, the authority out there. I really appreciate it. And John, thank you again for joining us on Inside the FLX. I really appreciate it.